0: How is this? <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Okay, okay good. So uh, this afternoon we come to the last of the four Brahma Viharas, that of Upeka, or as it's usually translated into English, equanimity. However, it's important to note that this, in this particular context, that of the as one of the four Brahma-viharas or divine abodes isn't the only place where Upeka comes into our practice in the way that we're teaching here this week. So before introducing the Brahma-vihara practice of Upeka, I'd like to spend a little bit of time just discussing the larger context of our practice and the place that Upeka has in that larger context. And we'll start by looking at just what this word upeka means. The standard translation of upeka into English is, as I said, equanimity. And a definition of equanimity in English might read as follows the state of being calm, stable, and composed, especially under stress. It's not always the case that there's a good match between terms in the Pali language and the vocabulary that we have in English. For some important Pali words, there's just really no good English translation. However, if we look at definitions of this Pali word upekka offered by Buddhist scholars, the English word equanimity is actually not too bad a fit. According to Bhikkhu Bodhi, upekka is a balanced reaction to joy and misery which protects one from emotional agitation. "Tanasaro," Bhikkhu from Forest monastery down near San Diego he defines upeka as an even-mindedness in the face of every sort of experience regardless of whether pleasure or pain are present or not. Upeka what upeka means for us experientially from a Buddhist perspective is well stated by Sharon Salzberg in her book Loving Kindness the Revolutionary Art of Happiness that Leslie's been quoting from and she writes that Equanimity is a spacious stillness of mind, a radiant calm that allows us to be present fully with all the different changing experiences that constitute our world and our lives. She further elaborates as follows. We can feel pleasure, yet without craving or clinging, without defining it as our ultimate happiness. We can feel pain fully without condemning or hating it. And we can experience neutral moments, neutral events in our lives by being fully present so that they are not just fill-in times until something more exciting comes along. So at first glance, this English-language word equanimity seems to be a pretty good fit as a translation for Upeka. But as we probe a little bit deeper, I suggest that we'll find some subtle differences between what this word Upeka means in Pali and in our in the context of our practice and the English definition. For example, already in Sharon Salzberg's description of our experience of upekka, you may have noticed that she emphasizes that in upekka we are fully present to our experience. Turning to the suttas or the Buddhist scriptures, particularly the suttas are the sermons of the Buddha, we find that the Buddha listed three kinds of upeka, and the first of these is sometimes translated as carnal or worldly equanimity, but which I prefer to render as mundane equanimity. And mundane equanimity is associated with our ordinary, everyday, mundane experiences of the six senses. Elsewhere um, in the sutras, the Buddha also offers a twofold definition of equanimity. He says that it's equanimity in regard to internal and external experiences. Two other kinds of equanimity, these two other that the Buddha listed and that I'll return to in a minute, are spiritual equanimity and what he called equanimity that is more spiritual than the spiritual. Sometimes, when first introduced to this notion of Upeka, people have the tendency to confuse it with indifference. Indifference, however, implies a lack of interest. Upeka, on the other hand, is born in the context of a deep interest in and a, sincerity, a sincere inquiry into the fundamental nature of our human experience. And Upeka actually ripens and matures through the experiential insights that such interest and inquiry catalyze. Upeka actually. Um, so in this way, Upeka is actually quite different from indifference. And Leslie has mentioned that with the three Brahmaviharas other Brahmaviharas, what the Buddha called their near and far enemies. And this experience of indifference is what the Buddha called the near enemy of Upeka. When we feel indifferent, we're not actually very far from upekka, or equanimity, but our lack of interest is getting in the way. The far enemies of upeka, according to the Buddha, are anxiety and greed. When our experience is shaped or colored by greed or anxiety, then our mental state is far removed from the balance and openness to experience that characterizes upeka. Sharon Salzberg suggests that we think of this more equanimous way of being as the shift from the stance of struggling to control our experience, as we tend to do when we're overcome by greed or anxiety, to that of the intent to simply connect with whatever comes our way. And in fact, in the context of the Brahma-viharas, Upeka is taught after metta, karuna, and mudita all of which are practices that deepen our experience of connectedness. Connectedness to those around us and eventually, as these practices mature and develop, each of these qualities, as they unfold, connect us to the whole fabric of life itself throughout the entire cosmos. So they're really deeply connecting practices, and upeka is the last of them. So it's important to keep in mind that upeka is characterized by this connectedness and an active interest in our experience. Both of these aspects of upeka are subtle differences from how we usually think of equanimity in the English language. So considering the importance of interest of being fully present in our experience of upeka, it becomes clear that upeka is deeply related to mindfulness. If we take John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, something like paying attention on purpose to what is happening in the present moment without judgment, then this purposeful interest, together with the absence of judging our experience, express this mental quality of upeka in our cultivation of mindfulness. Vipassana teacher um, Gil Fronsdale notes that Upeka literally means to look over. It refers, Fronsdale writes, to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation, the ability to see without being caught by what we see. And again, here in this characterization, we see the close proximity of mindfulness and Upeka. And Fraunstall identifies UPeka as a particular flavor of equanimity, an equanimity that is clearly embedded in our practice, in our direct experience of what is happening right here, right now. We actively witness our experience without being thrown off balance by it. The authors of a recently published scholarly article in a peer-reviewed journal called Mindfulness, elaborate on this intimate relationship between these two important aspects of practice, that of mindfulness and equanimity. Mindfulness, they write, emphasizes the ability to remain consciously aware of what is happening in the field of experience, while equanimity allows awareness to be even, and unbiased by facilitating an attitude of non-attachment and non-resistance. The cultivation of mindfulness can be seen as the foundation on which equanimity will gradually grow and develop. To this, I would add that as equanimity deepens, so does our ability to see more clearly. The less reactive we are to our moment-to-moment experience, the better we're able to stay attuned to just this moment, and the next, and the next. As such, the cultivation of mindfulness is an essential element in the cultivation of equanimity and vice versa. From these perspectives then, already you've been practicing upeka now for the past four days. So last night, Richard touched briefly on this notion of insight, and he's going to talk more about it tomorrow night. The Buddha described this process of developing insight as involving the maturation of what he called the seven factors of enlightenment. When these seven factors come together in a highly cultivated and balanced way, the door is open for our rediscovery. Of our original liberated nature. Whereas the Buddha puts it in the Anapanasati Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, our fulfillment of true knowledge and deliverance. So, what are these seven factors? The terms the Buddha used for these seven are, in order, unremitting mindfulness. Investigation of states, that's the investigative effort that I talked about the other night. Tireless energy. Unworldly rapture. Tranquility of body and mind. Steadiness of mind, or the term that Richard used the other night, samadhi, sometimes called concentration, and equanimity. And it's worth noting that equanimity is the last on the list. So I'd just like to touch base on these other two kinds of equanimity that the Buddha talked about. We notice that samadhi, or concentration, is the sixth of the factors of enlightenment. And when samadhi gets really well developed, um, Richard mentioned briefly these qualities of samadhi called the jhanas the other night, and when The last few of the jhanas, of the first section of jhanas, are reached, they're both characterized by a deep equanimity. And this particular kind of equanimity is what the Buddha called spiritual equanimity, an equanimity that's grounded in really deep samadhi or concentration. And when a practitioner has really perfected these seven factors of enlightenment, and comes to their own full liberation, we call them an arhat. Someone that has extinguished suffering in their own lives, we could say. And this equanimity that is more spiritual than the spiritual is the equanimity that characterizes the life of an arhat. In the suttas, the Buddha describes one of the primary benefits of equanimity as the capacity to remain balanced in the face of the eight kinds of experience which are beyond our ability to control. And these are the eight that Richard mentioned last night. These are experiences that we all encounter in various ways of life, and various ways in our life, and are what the Buddha called the eight worldly winds. The first pair is pleasure and pain. Second pair is gain and loss, or we could think of it as success and failure. The third pair is praise and blame. And the last pair is fame and disrepute. When these eight kinds of experience happen our way and we are unable to meet them with equanimity, then dukkha or discontentment is the result. When we we meet these eight worldly winds with equanimity, then clinging, the cause of our discontentment, is stopped. With equanimity, we don't cling. And without clinging, there's no discontentment. The Buddha also listed several other benefits of equanimity. In a teaching to his son, Rahula, he describes the central benefits of each of the four Brahmaviharas And regarding Upeka, the Buddha advised his son thus, Rahula, develop meditation on equanimity, for when you you develop meditation on equanimity, any aversion, one of the hindrances that Richard talked about, will be abandoned. So Upeka is thus uh, considered to be the specific antidote for the hindrance of aversion. And then in a passage that I think is especially relevant for those of us who work in the field of psychotherapy, the Buddha taught that when a practitioner cultivates upekka with regard to a particular source of suffering in his or her life, and I quote, such and such a source of suffering fades away in him or her while he or she develops equanimity. Thus that source of suffering is exhausted in him or her. So if we really develop equanimity, towards a specific source of suffering in our own lives. Our equanimity can be the cause of that particular source of suffering coming to an end for us. It's really quite a powerful statement. And lastly, in a passage that I think is equally instructive for us as therapists or healthcare professionals or educators, the Buddha notes that when we're trying to help someone, who turns out to be incorrigible or beyond our ability to help in some way. And I quote, one should not underestimate the value of equanimity towards such a person. One of our continuing education um, objectives um, has to do with the self-care benefit of UPECA. So I'm hoping that you're beginning to get a sense of how um, this quality of Upeka could be of tremendous value in your lives. and As we've seen, Upeka is deeply involved in our mindfulness practice, and we know from research the, the self-care benefits of mindfulness um, that are really well documented for teachers, for therapists, and for nurses and physicians. Research has been done in all those areas and, benef- and, and shown how mindfulness is really beneficial in, in, in self-care for all four those professions. And you know, whether we're in, we're in one or the other of those four professions, we're subject to the eight worldly winds, which cause stress and distress. And we're also subject to various kinds of aversion in our work. And Upeca is especially useful with these challenges that we face. And I'm sure that we all encounter difficult students or clients or patients or even friends, from time to time, people who've been unable, who we have been unable to help despite our best efforts. And I know that uh, for me personally, I found that Upeka has really been helpful, especially towards clients that have been difficult in my own practice. Sometimes people have a tendency to confuse an equanimous mind with a passive mind. Does being equanimous mean that we don't act in the world? No, it doesn't. Ideally, as we develop this balanced quality of mind of upeka, we continue to act in a way that is grounded in loving kindness, compassion, and empathic joy, rather than desire, aversion, or greed or hatred. Yet even such actions carry the subtle risk of desire for certain outcomes and aversion to others. As teachers and therapists, healing arts professionals, in our work of service to others, it's easy to fall into focusing on the results of our actions with desire and attachment. We desire for our students to learn and mature. We want our clients to feel less anxiety, to emerge from the darkness of depression, to suffer less. We want to feel good about ourselves and to be confident in our ability to make a difference in the lives of others. And yet when attachment to specific results enters into our service, it's somewhat problematic. And Upeka can help with this challenge. And we'll come back to this aspect of Upeka as a practice when we look at the role of upekka in the context of the Brahma-viharas. As we continue to look into this quality of upekka, it might be natural to actually wonder, well, what does fully developed upekka actually look like? And One of my favorite stories of mature equanimity comes from the Japanese Zen tradition, and the story takes place Several centuries ago, during the era of the samurai warlords in Japan. And it so happens that this one very fierce samurai warrior was leading a band of his cohorts on a rampage through the countryside, and they were capturing new territory for their realm. And as they approached this one particular village, all the inhabitants of this village, having heard, what the Samurai had done in other villages that they would attacked, they all left before the warriors arrived. All that is except for the local Zen master. He stayed at the temple. And when the warriors arrived in the village, the warlord was informed that everyone had left except for the Zen master. And the warlord, upon hearing this word, that this news, he actually kind of got incensed. He was really in a sense that anyone would dare to stay. And so he rushed to the temple to confront the Zen master. And he found him sitting in meditation. And he said, Don't you know that I am a man who could run you through with my sword without batting an eye? And the Zen master, looking up momentarily from his meditation, replied, And I, sir, am a man who could be run through by your sword without batting an eye. <laughs> And it said that upon hearing those words, the samurai warrior bowed deeply and went on his way. To be utterly equanimous in the face of or at the time of death, may we all attain to such profound equanimity. When it comes to the cultivation of upekka, clearly the practice of mindfulness and the deepening of insight that it catalyzes is a tremendous resource that all of us have at our disposal. In addition to mindfulness, the Buddha offered a direct cultivation of upekka in his teachings of the Brahmaviharas. When it comes to upekka as one of the Brahmaviharas, just as in the factors of enlightenment, the Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching on upaka on the brahmaviharas, upaka comes last in the progression. And it's interesting that there are several other places in the Buddhist teaching where upaka is considered part of a series, a progression of development, and in each one it comes last. But that doesn't mean, in the context of the brahmaviharas. That, when we leave, that we now leave Metta, Karuna, and Mudita behind. According to Sharon Salzberg, Upeka has all the love and warmth of the three previous states, but it has balance, wisdom, and understanding that things are as they are, and that we cannot ultimately control someone else's happiness. So here Salzberg points to another important flavor or quality the presence of these other three Brahma-viharas in our experience of upekka that's missing in our usual English understanding of the term equanimity. It's interesting that in the Buddha's depiction of a deeply concentrated mind, when he describes this equanimity that is spiritual equanimity, he says that it's equanimity that purifies mindfulness. And here in the context of the Brahma-viharas, we could similarly think of upekka as that quality of mind that completes or purifies the other Brahma-viharas in that it removes any subtle attachment or clinging we may have to the outcome of our cultivation of these three other heartfelt qualities. So it's significant that upekka, just as it does in the Factors of Enlightenment and in these other lists, that it comes last. Having directed our heartfelt wishes towards others, and with the qualities of metta, karuna, and mudita, upekka, and, and now with upekka, we acknowledge the limitation of our efforts. We purify ourselves of any tendency to become attached to the results of these three previous practices. And actually there's an interesting parallel, not a perfect exact parallel, but a similarity in psychotherapy that comes from one of our founding fathers, Sigmund Freud. Freud taught that the psychoanalyst must rid him or herself of the desire to cure. with the upeka brahmavihara practice like metta karuna and mudita we cultivate this quality of mind and also purify these other practices with repeated phrases and in the buddhist tradition we cultivate upeka as a brahmavihara by reminding ourselves of the buddhist teaching that is similar to the christian view that as we sow so shall we reap And the traditional phrase, which reflects this view, runs something like this. Your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. And that doesn't mean that there won't ever be results. As Leslie has so beautifully described, these practices can touch the people we direct them to. And they can positively affect relationships. But here's the catch. Sometimes the magic works, sometimes it doesn't. (laughs) And whether the magic works or not is out of our control. If we get attached to there being certain results, we set ourselves up for disappointment, for suffering. So we use this recitation to remind ourselves that we can't count on the magic working. But I want to say that, when I'm suggesting that we can't count on the magic working, what I mean is that we can't count on the magic working in the lives of the people that we're directing these brahmaviharas towards. And that's part of why we practice the brahmaviharas. And the other part is to have an impact on our own lives by cultivating and strengthening <coughs> these qualities in ourselves. And my sense is that if we keep practicing, we can count on that magic working. So getting back to the practice of Upekkha, as with other practices, we use a visualization of the person involved. and Lastly, there's a deep focus of the practice on this felt sense of the Brahma-Vihara. In this case, upeka. So in a moment, um, as we begin to practice upeka together for a bit, um, tune into the feeling that is being expressed by the phrases. That of not being attached to the results of the brahmavihara vihara practices for the person that you're directing them towards. And to bring this home, I'd like to lead you through a practice and in this practice, um, we'll actually start by cultivating loving-kindness, and then compassion, and then mudita, so you have the feeling of those qualities, of those Brahmaviharas fresh in your minds, and then we'll add to them the quality of equanimity, or upeka. So in, in, in order... Uh, yes? Is anyone a question? Does it relate specifically to the practice of, uh, of upekka? what it would look like. What? What upekka feels like looks like. Okay. So what upekka feels like is that, um, in relation to the Brahma-Viharas, is that all of these other qualities are there in your heart and they're directed towards the other person, and you know that it's not within your control. Whether they're going to benefit the other person or not, and you can accept that and let go of any attachment that you might have towards the other person actually getting some benefit from the practice. Does that does that make sense? Okay. So, and then what I well, the other thing that I just suggest with that is that you um, exp- experiment with the phrases, say the phrases and see if they connect with a feeling in you, if they evoke a feeling in you, and allow that feeling to come forth and to join with the feeling of the other 3 brahmaviharas that you've been cultivating. That's the, the gist of the period of practice that we're going to do. So just give that a try. Loving-kindness, compassion, and empathic joy. Or in Pali, it's metta, karuna, and mudita. So in order to connect this practice directly with our work, what I'd like to suggest is that you pick a client, or a patient, or a student, or if that doesn't fit for you, a friend, for whom it is easy for you to feel these first three viharas, That you can feel loving-kindness, that you can feel compassion for them, and that you can empathize with their joy, and we'll do a short period of metta and then karuna and then mudita for this person, and then we'll shift to the the upekka practice with the intent of purifying these other brahma-viharas of any tendency to be attached to particular results. And As we shift towards upekka, I just suggest that you see if you can hold on also the feeling of the other three practices, as Sharon Salzberg suggests, while adding the capacity of equanimity to the mix. So lastly, um, after doing this practice towards your client, your patient, your friend, your student, we'll direct UPeka also towards ourselves. And in this practice of UPeka, it's a little bit different than the other Brahma Viharas and the phrases which I lead you in in this practice will express the wish that you yourself may develop this quality of apeka in your own practice. It's a little different. So um, let's just settle in. Maybe start by focusing on your breathing, a little bit of mindful breathing, just to connect. With the present moment, and to connect with your steady quality of mind, and then see if you can come up with an appropriate person to direct these three qualities, and then also the equanimity towards. And when you have someone in mind, if you could just raise your hand. Okay. So what I'm going to do is to read some phrases that um, capture the feeling of each of these Brahma Viharas in turn. We'll do maybe three or four minutes of loving kindness. And then I'll suggest that you switch by offering phrases for Karuna. And we'll do that for a few minutes. And then we'll do... Udita for a few minutes, and I'll say some phrases just to give you some phrases to work with if you don't remember some particular phrases. If you have some phrases that you like for each of these practices that you've been using, please use your own phrases, the the ones you feel connected with. So imagining the person that you've chosen in front of you, and that might be a visual image or it might actually just be... The feeling of their presence in front of you if visualization is not easy for you. And then cultivating loving kindness towards this person, you might use the phrase, may you be safe. May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be safe may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. And so you can just continue reciting the phrases yourself, feeling the quality of this Brahma Vihara of loving kindness in your heart, and directing that feeling towards the visual image or the presence, the felt presence of the person in front of you. And now we're going to switch to sending compassion or karuna to the same person. And a phrase you might use is, may you be free from discontent. May you be free from discontent. May you be free from discontent. And as with all of the practices that we're doing, if you notice that your mind has wandered away from the practice, just as soon as you notice, just gently bring it back and resume your practice that we're doing, which at this point is the karuna practice of compassion. So now we'll switch to um, empathic joy or mudita. May your happiness and good fortune continue and increase. May your happiness and good fortune continue and increase. May your happiness and good fortune continue and increase. And so now while continuing to hold as best as you can, these three qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, and empathic joy, I'm going to add some phrases for equanimity, or upekka. And the phrase, just one phrase, one sentence, it goes like this. Your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. Your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. Your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. Your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. So just continue reciting those phrases and directing that quality of equanimity together with the other Brahma-viharas towards the person you've chosen. So just as we can direct metta, karuna, and mudita towards ourselves, we can also use upekka practice to cultivate our equanimity towards ourselves as well. So please shift now in your practice to directing the following phrases towards yourself. You can pick one of these two phrases, I'll say each of the two phrases three times, and you can pick one that works for you, and continue reciting it all the while holding the feeling of the wish that's that's described by the phrase, holding that feeling, that wish for yourselves. And as you recite these phrases, um, connecting with that wish as best you can and then allowing the feeling of that wish to spread throughout your body. May I be undisturbed by the coming and going of events. May I hold my joys and my sorrows with equanimity. May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. May I hold my joys and my sorrows with equanimity. May I be undisturbed by the comings and goings of events. May I hold my joys and sorrows with equanimity. Just picking one of those two phrases, just continuing to recite, directing this quality of mind that the phrase is evoking throughout your body. Um, So, I'd like to invite any questions or comments, and I'd also like to invite Leslie to put on a microphone and to feel free to weigh in. I feel like Leslie's really kind of, from my perspective, the resident expert at this retreat on these um, areas of practice, and so I just want to invite her expertise to join us. Yes.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I the helicopter
2: family. We fix. You fix <coughs> so it's. I mean, yeah. I, I can't even really say that to myself. i not
0: give okay. <laughs> So So could I, could I suggest maybe a different phrase for you? Oh, there's yeah. question. Um, you yeah, so she said that she's struggling with this particular quality that she no, comes from no, a kind of a helicopter family where the, the strategy is to always go in and fix, mm-hmm. okay? So what you might try is, um, may I be be equanimous in the face of my efforts to fix? Which means that you (laughs) don't stop fixing, but if you fail, you can be equanimous. That that might that might work for you. I don't know. I I think it's really helpful to be creative and even a little bit playful with the phrases that we use for these qualities to fit what your particular challenges are with the quality involved.
3: And yep. I, I just wanted to say one more thing. Sure. Giggling can be part of equanimity sometimes. <laughs> Actually, like you see that a lot with Richard. Sometimes the humor is one of the ways he expresses his equanimity. Yeah. Does that make sense? That sometimes our humor, sometimes humor can be kind of a defense against feeling anything, but sometimes humor can be a sign of really deep equanimity with something. Mm-hmm. So just to broaden the frame a little. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. I was thinking about a student in my class, I think, second grade,
4: who's just this lovely, lovely little girl. She's a twin from India. And she's just, you know, um, joy and happiness and peace. She's wonderful. And so the the phrase about um, your joy and sorrow depend on your actions, not on um, what I wish for you, makes no sense to me. If she comes in and she says her dog died. Um, she hasn't done any actions that are causing that to happen. Mm -hmm. Or even with an adult, you have a client and they have a a sorrow in their life, their actions are not... You know what I'm saying? Mm
0: -hmm. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, both in the Buddhist tradition and in the Christian tradition, we have this understanding that our actions really do come back to us in various ways.
4: But if your child's dog died, she hasn't done the action. Mm. You mean, like in a past life, she did? Some, I mean, it's, a mis- yeah. it's
0: really, it's really a mystery. There
3: are different. I think this is one of the reasons. Can I? Sure, chime absolutely, in? absolutely. And what is what is the other phrase you are having people repeat? Just to have the other one out here too. You mean for the other option? You had two okay. phrases. Can you just say uh, the other one too? Well, I to only
0: gave one phrase for equanimity for others, which oh, was, you only gave one. which is your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. Can you but read some of the other here? Yeah. So yeah. here are some of the other ones.
3: Because um, the phrases you use, there is this quality equanimity. So that's really there is a quality and the phrases like the loving-kindness practice or the mudita phrases vary depending on who you are and also who you're directing it to, what may feel authentic. So if I was directing... Um, if I, you know, with children, and I've worked a lot with children, it's true, there's all kinds of conditions going on around them, right? All the time that they are... Uh, And for all of us, really, the conditions, there are, when you are directing it to an adult, one of the ways I could interpret this actions is there are even mental actions in terms of how we respond to the situations in our life. That, like, if you're working with an adult, so I mean, go back to children, but if we're working with an adult... You could be working and working with this client and then there's this surrender. You know, they're going to do what they do with their mind <laughs> and their body and their actions ultimately. With the child, you know, I don't really think children are supposed to be equanimous <laughs> really yet, you know. Some, some of them are kind of naturally. Well, it kind of but comes to me just
4: all of a sudden. Sure.
3: So it's our equanimity with if, them, though.
4: If, we, if I could say to her, may you, well, um, maybe this is an equanimity, may you be at peace with this hard thing that's happened to you, or Mm. not... you see what I'm kind of saying? And we're really, yes,
3: and we're really saying it to ourselves. I mean, Mm -hmm. with a child,
4: like I worked the week before I
3: came here, there's a couple of kids in a school that I have some relationship with, and there's abuse in the family, and we did what we could do. We reported it. We tried to work in some ways with the parents, and at a certain point, there isn't anything else I can do except... You know, send my loving kindness, Mm -hmm. send my good wishes for her and find some kind of balance in my own heart with the fact that I can't control the circumstances around this child. Mm. So that's the idea is that we're, we're looking at our own capacity to have a balanced heart with circumstances we can't control.
0: So here's a phrase from the list on your Brahma Vihara phrase list that I think might work in this situation. I care for you but I can't control your happiness or unhappiness,
3: yeah yes
4: yeah, but I, but I, for the seven year old I want to acknowledge and and give something that it's okay for her to feel sad, right, you but you're not seven year old you're that, that mm-hmm. they that that she's in charge of whether she's happy or sad when she's crying and sobbing that her dog died.
3: Right, yeah. so this isn't something you're saying to the children. It's something you're saying within your own mind. So all of these phrases are not oh, about oh, saying oh, it I to the person.
4: I am mm. sorry, I thought this was something we were saying to this.
3: We might envision them. So with a child, we might be inwardly acknowledging, I can't control this movement.
0: Well, the phrase that I gave sort of gives that impression. Yes, yeah, say, say it again? And, yeah, the phrase that I gave, your happiness and sorrow depend on your actions, not on my wishes. It's almost like it's spoken to. And this is one of the traditional phrases. But I, I appreciate you raising this question yeah. because it really brings to light one of the limitations of this, for me anyway, of one of these traditional phrases. And I, I, I'm really... Gravitating towards that one that I just read, yeah. read. I, I care for you, but I can't control your happiness or unhappiness.
4: And in other words, maybe in a few days you will feel like I, I always say, you know, get a piece of paper you can draw a picture of your dog. Yeah, right. Maybe in a few days they will feel better.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and, and so, like, um, that kind of wish actually fits more in some of the other Brahma Viharas, like, may you be peaceful. in the context of your suffering. Or, may you be free from this suffering. Those are like wishes of loving kindness or of compassion. And then Upeka says, even though I wish this for you, I can't control it for you. I
4: think what you're saying, what you said at the beginning of this, is so, so very important because I know many of us here work with children whose mother lives in another country, mother has died of drug overdose. I mean, these kids are dealing with heavy... Heavy stuff. And off if we don't know, and then all of a sudden, yeah. you find that out. Yeah, and it's 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 big.
0: It's big, yeah. And so this this so that the other brahma viharas are to express your care for that child, and then this Brahmavihara vihara is to remind you that even though you really deeply care, you can't fix it for them and necessarily.
4: We have to get care of ourselves yes. Burned out.
3: Yeah. Right. So, this balance, so that actually it can help keep compassion and loving kindness and mudita alive in your heart to have this access to this quality. This is sort of the antidote to compassion fatigue. It's like the balance, the surrender. You were going to say that? Yeah. Oh. An antidote to compassion fatigue.
1: Yes. An antidote to
3: compassion fatigue.
2: Yeah. That's
3: right. So that we can balance our own hearts. Did everyone hear
0: that? She said it's the antidote to compassion fatigue. Mm-hmm. And I'll just add to that, it's a self-care practice. Mm-hmm. Yes. I heard in another um, retreat I was on that
2: equanimity that is kind of like where you would like to be or hold or be able to do and then the truth of what really
3: is and having compassion for the difference. Oh mm. that's
1: lovely. Mm. That's love- that's love- that's
3: uh
1: huh.
0: Yeah, so sh- you're saying that like the other three Brahma Viharas are here's what I'd like to be able to do for you and that upekka is and here's what I can do and it's limited <laughs> and I can accept that.
3: Beautiful,
2: thank you. Yeah. Yes? Um, I'm wondering if you have suggestions for translating this to real time. So, like, mm-hmm. Real time. Because um, suggestion I heard was to to do trigger practice. Trigger practice? Like, watch, my teacher said, watch, (laughs) (laughs)
1: talk, move. I I just mean, like, I can do this now. Um, I'm in medical training, and it's much harder to, like, Mm. it's a big jump from here to there. So I wonder if you guys have any
2: recommendations for, like, interim, like, intermediate. Steps
0: in practicing it integrating it into like non sitting? My own experience is with any of these practices, whether it's any of the four brahmaviharas, or whether it's mindfulness or other practices in other spiritual traditions or other Buddhist practices, that if you practice them in like as a part of your daily life, not, I mean, not in, I, what I mean is if you have a formal period of practice in your daily life, like a period of half an hour of meditation each day. Whatever practices you practice in that half hour, strengthen over time. And as they strengthen over time, it, be, it gets a bit easier to translate them into action, into your active daily experience. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I would say. It's kind of like, um, yeah. So someone sent me a note a little while ago about um, uh, concentration being like uh, muscle building that you know, you, The more you exercise it, the stronger it gets. And in a way, that's really true. And at the same time, I'd say there's a little bit of a difference in that my impression about muscle building, and some of you that are in the medical profession might have a different perspective on it, but it, it, it tends to go a bit more like this. The more you practice, the stronger you get. It's just kind of a straight line. But these kind of practices are kind of like this.
1: <laughs>
0: and they go in the direction towards strengthening, but it's not a straight line.
3: And, and I, I wanted to just chime in something. Sure, like okay. please. Which is that in addition, he's talking about having a formal practice and you would be sitting and doing one of these practices maybe for some period of time or alternating different ones. I also use it, let's say I've had a, a situation where I have something really difficult going on with a child or I feel really out of touch with an adult or a child that I'm working with or training then i can do some of these brahmavihara practices to try to connect with a particular person so bring them to mind you know i'm not getting so and so and i'm really irritated with them <laughs> and so let me try some compassion practice and see can i can i can i shift where i am with them you know can i do loving kindness and feel attuned, and it really makes a difference often in the relationships, both in working with young people, with youth, and and with adults. I Mm -hmm. found it really powerful Mm -hmm. in daily life.
0: And so that's a description of the magic working, and just the Upeca practices just to remind you that it doesn't always necessarily make a difference. Mm Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think it, I think it's really I think that's a pretty good description. Can you repeat it? What yeah. she said? Yeah. Uh, See, she asked if it's if Upekta practice is the equivalent to non-clinging, and it it is equivalent, especially in the Brahmaviharas. It's equivalent to non-clinging to the results of the other Brahmavihara practices. Mm-hmm. In our mindfulness practice, it's just the equivalent of non-clinging in a way, mm-hmm. but it's 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 not just non-clinging. It's non-clinging while being mindful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think
2: one of the, when, um, one of the things that um, this has done is uh, it's helped me understand the perspective of different professionals that I work with. I've been thinking of a particular client, and, um, and I'm a social worker uh, focused on housing, helping them mm-hmm. get housed and then sustain housing. Right. The yeah. Right now. And um, he sees a psychologist and a psychiatrist, and we all write notes. And we share the notes and we can all read them. It's a medical record. And um, um, I think me and like my supervisor were thinking, you know, just get him to see the
1: psychiatrist. Like that'll fix everything. <laughs> you know, get him, you know, even if they have to have someone to drive them, get him to see the psychologist.
2: And then finally he makes it to these appointments, and then we're all looking to see
1: like what happened. Meanwhile, all these things are happening, like the landlord's threatening to a victim and Mm. And um, they have,
2: like, the notes you can see, they're just, they have this, um, you know, they're they're not flustered by what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that Mm -hmm. some of
0: it's like the role. I'm the one who's most responsible for, you know, but there's only so much I can do. That's right, yeah. That's what this helps. I think it helps me, like, take care
2: of myself.
3: Yes, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Did you have a response go ahead, go ahead. to that? Well, I go ahead, if you want to. No, 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 I, 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 yeah. I just um, was going to say this, this thing about the role and in our different roles in life, that the equanimity can really be a palpable thing, as can the other Ramaviharas. When I said it has an effect, I don't necessarily mean it directly affects the other person, but it may affect the quality of presence we can bring in a very powerful way, and people can feel seen differently. With any of the Brahma Vihara's and with equanimity, as you're describing, there's somebody who can be the eye of the storm, you know, (laughs) holding that, right? And it can settle settle things around you. So yeah, thanks.
0: Last question. I was curious
2: because I think a lot of the ways that maybe I've approached doing my work as a therapist has a lot of equanimity in it. I care greatly about my clients um, but I also know that I'm doing the best that I can. And mm-hmm. when they're in the right place, they'll be ready to hear it. So I can go home and, and I'm OK. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had others perceive me as, oh, well, you just don't care as much. Because I'm not drowning in my sorrows for my clients because they've been abused and they are you know, starving to death. And I, I accept that. I know that that's where they are. In my suffering for them won't change that. Mm-hmm. And it won't make me any better because then I can't be with them where they are. Mm-hmm. But yet others perceive
0: me in a different way. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder. My thought about that is that the others that are perceiving you in that way don't maybe have the experience of caring together with equanimity. Mm-hmm. And what they're perceiving in you is maybe what The only experience they may have themselves that feels like what you are presenting is indifference. Mm -hmm. And so they're perceiving your equanimity as indifference because they don't have the possibility for themselves or the experience themselves of caring with equanimity. (laughs)
1: But you just don't seem like you care. Yeah.
0: So maybe with this notion of equanimity in the context of the Brahma Viharas, you might have a way to explain to people how it is for you that there's deep caring and there's also equanimity. It's not indifference. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, it's just been, um, I was just thinking and taking in what you're saying. My experience sometimes is that the equanimity helps the empathy really come up when it's needed and then there's letting go. So part of the equanimity seems like it allows things to flow more easily so that what arises doesn't have to kind of stay stuck there. And um, that it actually makes more room for empathy Real equanimity for that yeah. to, to come come and be um, a real attunement to the other.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: yeah. mm-hmm. So it allows you're saying that it allows the other Brahma Viharas to actually deepen because the equanimity is holding them.
3: Yes, and because they're because it um, it's like the equanimity helps states not get stuck as a state. It's like there's this balance to hold different kinds of Qualities, including mm-hmm. the other Brahmaviharas, yeah. and that they can come and go without clinging.
0: So I think we need to stop. We're over a bit. So <laughs> um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.